For those that did gather last week, we gathered in a circle standing. We read some scripture together. We sang a hymn together. We took communion together. And then we served together as we went and, and helped connect with some neighbors and try to bless neighbors as much as possible and just say, we're present with you and we live in this community and we love you and we see you. So uh, good, good, good opportunity, good church experience. But I paused, I didn't preach and everyone was thankful for that. So here we go. I've doubled up, of course, this week. You're all hunkered in, you're ready to go. If you have a yard, and I know, how many of you have a yard that you have to take care of, big or small, doesn't matter, just ha you have a yard, that's, that's most, most of us have some kind of yard, and you don't enjoy weeding, there is one thing you need to do more than any other thing, and it's not even close, I'll, I'll tell you in a few minutes. How's that for a teaser? Admittedly, that's an incredibly odd way to begin a sermon and think I was going to preach that last week with 12 inches of snow on the ground, but it's still mid-February with the remnants of the winter storm here. So a strange way to begin, but spring is coming. In fact, I have already seen a few weeds popping up in my yard. So I promise spring is coming and we can look forward to it, weeds and all. That leads me to Mark chapter 4. So get your devices or your books and flip or tap to Mark chapter 4. That's where we've led off. I'm planning to preach two messages from this famous parable from Jesus. Normally, I would try to capture it in one, but, you know, field church and wind and everything else. So one with the application that's more personal for you and me to respond to this parable of Jesus, which does have a lot of personal application. And then next week, a more of a corporate application for all of us, because this parable, perhaps more than any other teaching of Jesus, has inspired our vision and our core values as a church and the language that we use around those things. It's become emblematic of our hope and our prayers, and it has truly shaped us these last couple of years. I hope that kind of language will become obvious as I remind us of how this teaching of Jesus has captured those things. It's vital that we understand this parable if we want to understand Jesus and his mission and his primary message. That's what Jesus says about this teaching to his disciples in Mark chapter 4 verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, perhaps Jesus meant this is the easiest one of all to understand. How can you not grasp it? Perhaps he also meant this parable has a key that is central to all of my teaching, to all of my messaging, perhaps some of both. Why even use parables? And they asked him that question. Why not be just direct and clear? What's the point, Jesus? And he said to them, verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Everything is slightly veiled so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus quoting again prophecies that he has come to fulfill. 
He who has ears, let him hear. Perhaps there's some double meaning in that statement too. Everyone who is ready, is ready to hear and receive, who has those kinds of ears, a ready heart, let them hear. But the double meaning is everyone has ears. May all hear. This, this last statement, lest they turn and be forgiven, is not a restrictive statement, but an, an invitation that all could turn, all who could, would turn to God through Jesus to hear from him would receive grace, would receive forgiveness. That's all it takes. The veil is thin with these parables. Parables have a beautiful way of, of fuzzy edges, not rigid ones. It's like a story. And like any good story, you can find yourself in it. You're drawn in and find your own place in it. Your life and your journey parallels it. That's part of the reason for the parables. It's, it's, it's a beautiful way. And, and there's also like, like poetry often, there's no end to how far you might be able to go in, in pressing and looking for applications and points of connection. So Jesus, as a, as a great, great storyteller, uses parables to teach the truth of the kingdom of God. But for those who have soft hearts, fertile soil, to use this kind of language, like open ears, they will perceive and understand, they will receive and begin to apply his teaching. So Lord, give us, every one of us, soft hearts, open ears, where we are not able to prepare those soft hearts or open ears ourselves, Lord, help us that we might receive. So let's jump into this easiest of all parables. This one that I do believe is central to the to all of the teaching of Jesus at its core. The sower, the seed, and the soil. Sometimes it's been called all of those together or just one of those as a title. We understand this one, don't we? We've run into it a few times. I, I have to assume that if you've read through the story of the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and our Bibles, you've come across it at least three times because Matthew and Luke also record this parable quite similarly to Mark, almost identically. Jesus also gives a full explanation of this one. He doesn't do that with every one of his parables. He teaches it and then with his disciples explains it and says, here, it is very clear. So it must be vitally important for us to understand. So, but yet in humility, let's ask for even greater perception that if it is an old parable to us, that it would become new even today as we hear it with new eyes and apply it with faithful heart. So quick quiz. I haven't read it yet. Maybe you're familiarizing yourself again with it as I see you have your devices. How many kinds of soil does Jesus refer to? Now, you know, when I ask questions like that, you're, everyone's hesitant to answer because I'm probably going to trick you or just raising your hand in public or it's just too vulnerable. But I saw some fours and I wonder if that's what you would say. There's four kinds of parables, but actually there are three. So maybe we do need to take a closer look at the story. And if you got the three, you can inwardly gloat about it or lean to your neighbor and say, there's just three. I knew this one. There's not four. Let me summarize because again, I believe we're somewhat familiar. And then I'll read Jesus's full description of it word for word. So that if this is a newer parable to you, you'll hear it again from Jesus's own words. The summary, a sower, a gardener, a farmer, someone with seed goes out and scatters it broadly. 
likely it's planting, it's good seed. He wants a harvest from this seed. We're not told exactly what the harvest is, but likely some form of wheat or grain in that culture. He has so much of it, he doesn't seem to care where he scatters it. The more, the better. And some falls along the path that has been worn down and hardened. Some falls just outside of that path or in other spots that are quite rocky. If you notice, most of the rocks from the, that are scattered around us are right from this very soil. We live upon a very uh, rocky, cobbled uh, land. And if you've tried to dig in it, you know that. There are some places that are more clay-like for sure, but very cobble-filled, rocky-filled. And some of that seed fell in this rock-filled soil. And then some fell among thorns, and then some other seed fell on the good soil, the fertile soil, probably the prepared soil that had been tilled or broken up, ready to receive the seed that that same farmer probably prepared and then scattered most of the seed there. But again, with his generosity, he continued to just scatter wherever he felt led. And maybe the wind took some of it also. Now, does that still sound like four kinds of soil? You're looking for the three, or did you see it? There are three kinds of soil. Let's listen to Jesus's interpretation to his disciples in verse 14 and following. So apparently, again, this parable is vitally important if Jesus is going to explain it in detail. The sower is the one who sows the word. And these are the ones along the path. The word is sown. And when they hear, Satan, the adversary, immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And here's the ones that are sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So now you see the three kinds of soil, not four. The path, the compacted hard earth is soil number one. The soil full of rocks, soil number two. And the good soil, soil number three. The good soil bore thorns in some places and good crop in others. But there were three kinds of soil. Now do you see the three kinds of soil? Not necessarily what was produced from the soil. These soils represent hearts and souls. Wherever faith may take root and begin to grow. I want to make the assumption, I think I can, that the majority of us gathered here today under these tents are good soil. Now you are fully welcome here if you self-identify as hard soil or rocky soil. You are welcome but if you are hard soil and the adversary snatched away the word that was sown, I'm not sure you find yourself here this morning. And if you are rocky soil that has taken some form of root, 
But then the troubles of this life or some form of persecution, hardship and trials have come. And those seem evident in our midst all around from our political climate to the pandemic to the very weather that we endure in this very moment. So I wonder if you would find yourself here if you are rocky soil and have no deep roots growing. It is difficult to be using the label or even associated with the term evangelical today. And I am fully okay if you never want to use that as an adjective or a label again and you're looking for new terms to define your faith and the way that you follow Jesus. And I'm also okay because there's some mentors of mine that are strong advocates of redeeming words and concepts theologically, biblically, historically, that don't want to waver as culture wavers. So I'm okay. Wherever you land on that, I think I'm wavering between the two. Not at all would I say that that means persecution in our context today. I understand too much of the story of God's people to say that we are facing persecution, but we may be facing some form of marginalization and maybe some kind of quick judgment from others in our context, depending on the context we are in. But if that's just one piece of the, the hardship that we face, then if you are rocky soil and don't have any deep roots growing, I'm not sure you find yourself here in our midst today or even watching online. Again, you are welcome. If that's the way you would say you are on your journey, still hardened against the words of God or still without deeper root taking place. If the majority of us, and maybe all of us, would say, I think then I am good soil. Before we get too excited about that, we probably had not much to do with it. Another helped prepare us to even receive. Likely God himself as the sower, the tiller in this analogy, has prepared our hearts and put us into position to hear him and respond to him. Would we be humble enough to reflect if that's true and the word of God, his promises, the way the gospel enters into us, the, the good news of who Jesus and his kingdom is, it's healing and mercy and justice and freedom and holistic salvation, sozo, that comes into us. If we have received that, no matter how deep our roots are, but we are growing, are we flourishing? Is our fruit being born 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold without pressing too far into what exactly that might look like? Maybe a little bit of a pause till next week as we ex explore the idea of diverse fruit and what that means to bear fruit. But if we're humble enough to ask that question, and the answer is no, or at minimum, I'm not sure if I'm abundantly producing this kind of fruit that Jesus says happens when the root of his word grows deep within me, then we do have to ask, if we, are, if we do imagine that we have been prepared as good soil, then what is the issue? Are we thorny? Is just as much of what's coming out and growing in our life, these thorns that Jesus says are here in our midst. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. 
What is that? What is that pricking your heart? Is that a thorn? Or is that the word of God needling in and bringing conviction? Where there's conviction, there's always encouragement. That's how God brings his word to bear in our life. So if we'd humbly say, yes, I, I see those things. I resonate. Those thorns are growing in my life. Maybe right alongside the growth of the word that would bear fruit to bless. What do we do then? If we want to thrive and bear fruit and we see these thorns in our life, how do we weed them out? Is that even an effort? Now, I am fully supportive of weeding. But maybe the focus shouldn't be on weeding. Does anyone know what these things mean even? The cares of this world? Can you relate to what Jesus is talking about? The deceitfulness of riches? We have more wealth as a people in the history of the world and we're still not fulfilled. The desires for other things. Things that will make no demand on my time on my schedule, on my money or my service. At least that's what we think. So if we know we've got these kinds of thorns, can we weed them out? Throughout the centuries, those following Jesus have tried to remove the thorns or remove themselves from the thorns, so to speak. The ascetics have, have often tried to completely withdraw from the world and its influences in order that they would live holy lives. The only problem with that is the ministry of Jesus himself does the very opposite. Jesus left the ascetic place. He left heaven to come into earth, surrounding himself by the influences of the world, by the sins of others. That's where he did his ministry. The apostle Paul also relentlessly pursued the world. He did not withdraw from it. So that's not an option for those that are following Jesus. Although weeding can be helpful. And for example, if the thing, let's just take a simple one. If your television or the way you use the tool of television in that media form is choking out the word of God, the promises of God, then get rid of the TV. Unplug it, sell it, give it away. And if your response is, I could never do that, then now we're starting to get at the heart. That's an easy one. An easy kind of thorn that could choke out the word of God that brings in more of the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. Now, how many of you enjoy weeding? A few, kindred spirits, I do. Actually, when we're reflecting on it, it's not the act of weeding. It's the process of beautifying an area, of tilling a garden, preparing it for something else. And it's, there's ability to resonate with battling the curse, by the way. And I don't mind that effort also. Let's return to my teaser that you've all been waiting for from the beginning or you've completely forgotten by now, which is understandable. If you have a yard, whether you're a gardener or not, and you don't like picking weeds, because that was the vast majority of us, there's one thing you should do above all others, and it's not even close. And you know what that is, don't you? Plant more. Plant more of what you do want to grow in your garden. Depending on your kind of garden, more fruits, more vegetables, more shrubs, more trees, more ground cover. 
Give the weeds less room to take root. And then prune and cultivate those plants so the coverage is almost complete across the soil. The weeds will not be able to take root. And if you fertilize rightly and cultivate those plants, it may even dominate and choke out the weeds, the thorns. By the way, this isn't just me and my understanding. This is from a master gardener that I took some lessons from years ago. The number one rule of gardening, of landscaping, is to fill it up with what you want and let that bloom and thrive and produce fruit. Will we ever truly be able to eradicate weeds? Likely not. They seem to be the most hardy, the most difficult, and we often will battle, and that seems to be a part of the promise from the beginning, that it will be difficult, but there is way to triumph. And if we can apply that, if you would allow me, to a spiritual application, if the Word of God is the seed, is the plant, is the growth that we want, to bear in our lives, then how do we bring more of that in? Because the problem with focusing on the weeds, many have been called ferocious weeders over the years. Maybe also the, the fundamentalists among us or those that lean that way. Just tear it out, get it all out, remove it. You hear me use that TV analogy. So many are like shrinking within themselves and cringing others. You're, if you're a ferocious weeder, you're like, yes, today. Today, that's going to the sidewalk with a free sign on it because it just invigorates you to think about anything that could, could challenge the word of God and the presence of God in my life. I want gone, even if it could be just a neutral tool. So we do have some diversity in our midst, but the problem with focusing on the weeds is they always grow back in different ways in different forms. And I would encourage us to not dismiss those weeds right before us and pluck them out, but to draw in the word of God and to have that planted more and more deeply, that that is what grows and dominates. And if the word of God is not planted in your life, it's a daily exercise to read and meditate, to reflect and pray, to ponder and record, to dwell on, if not memorize, that you could draw from. So when I was thinking on these three, if these three are the thorns that we want, the, the main thorns that Jesus says are growing, that we want gone in our life, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things, what does God's word speak to those that we might meditate on? These are ones that just came to mind for me, and they are many. And if we don't have these to grasp from and draw from, then likely there's a lot of barren soil that's just ready and ripe for more thorns to grow. The cares of this world, just receive some of these as reminders. If you can resonate with that, the cares of this world. Jesus said in John 16, I've said all of these things to you, my disciples, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In Matthew 6, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about the cares of this world. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the worldly people seek after all these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Deceitfulness of riches. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but yet forfeits his very soul? What shall man give in return for his soul? Priceless. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Kingdom economy. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment doesn't come from riches or wealth. I hope other, other passages, other promises are coming to mind. Even if you couldn't quote them, you can paraphrase them back to counter these thorns that might grow according to this parable, this central teaching of Jesus. And finally, this desire for other things. And I want to use a case study. Consider the wealthiest and wisest man perhaps to ever, ever live. And if Solomon himself didn't pen Ecclesiastes, then it's like a biography of his life and his primary message. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 and following. Quoting Solomon, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and that was even a reward for all my labor. You can read the whole chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and he, defi- he describes all of the areas that he had just seen, abundance and excess. Likely, he was the, the wealthiest man who ever lived according to the times, according to potentially world wealth at that time. Yet, he says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Could we use him as a case study? We may not be able to eradicate the thorns or the weeds that want to choke out our faith, but meditating on the word of God daily and repeatedly, bringing that, that promise to grow in our life, may then choke out the weeds and certainly dominate the soil of our hearts and souls. It's like applying the fertilizer, so to speak. So do we want to be smart? As I've often said, and I can't remember where I picked this up, probably not me. If we want to be smart, learn from our mistakes. If we want to be wise, learn from the mistakes of others. And we have many examples before us in scriptures. We have many modern examples of those in our world that have seemingly gained it all. All except peace, contentment, satisfaction, rest, and fulfillment. From CEOs to celebrities, from family to friends, even us. If we picture our life now compared to the vision we had when we were 10, 20 years younger, we've received so much. Where's the contentedness and the rest and the peace that we promised to ourselves when we looked in the mirror would be ours only if we achieved the things that we've now received. And yet, 
we could use these earthly examples. And the greatest one we turn to is Jesus himself. The one with more weight on his shoulders than anyone who has ever lived. The weight of the world. If anyone had reason for stress, anxiety, restlessness, and urgency, it was Jesus. And yet he went through life unhurried, balanced, restful, and at shalom. How did he do that? Because daily he meditated on the word of God. He knew it inside and out. And he walked with the spirit to bring to remembrance the promises of God. He shows us the way and invites us to follow. Let's not focus on the thorns as much as dwell in the promises of God daily that we might bear 30, 60, and 100 fold. Help us, Lord. Make us a humble people of confession and repentance, of admission and of turning, of mind change that leads to action. We want to flourish and thrive even in hard seasons. Make us wise, Lord. Help us to discern that we might pick and cut out the weeds and thorns that are right before us. But Lord, help us grow deep roots in you and your word that might bear diverse fruit that multiplies. Amen.